0: It's me again with another quick announcement before we start. If you like this podcast and you'd like to see it get bigger and better into the future, there are a few things you can do. First of all, you can donate to in Science. Head to in and look for the big donate button. Alternatively, if you're super keen, you can become an in Science patron. Go to Patreon.com slash Science and pledge a monthly donation that helps us keep the lights on and keep these science podcasts coming. Aside from financial support, there are a few other things you can do to help us out. If you've just turned this podcast on, you've probably got your iPhone out in handy. If you do, jump on and give the podcast a glowing review on iTunes. That'd help us out a lot. If not, you might just want to simply tell a friend. Tell someone about the podcast. Give them a good old-fashioned face-to-face review. If you like the podcast, hopefully they will too. Maybe tell them what your favorite episode is. Maybe it's this one. Who knows? Let's find out. Welcome back, you're listening to In-Situ Science, where each episode, we meet a different scientist and find out what it is they do and why they do it. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode, I'm joined by entomologist, taxonomist, and science communicator, Tom Saunders. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Now, you're not a Harry Potter fan, by any chance.
1: I am a little bit of a Harry Potter fan, James. Yes. (laughs) Was this before
0: or after... You named a wasp after a Harry Potter character.
1: So that was quite a, a fun little episode. Yes. <laughs> um Yeah, so I was for my masters I was working with Darren Ward from Landcare Research in, in Auckland. And we we had this, this species of wasp that needed to be described and I thought it would be a really cool introduction for me to to the world of taxonomy and, and species description. So had a look at it and we knew what the genus was. The genus was Lucius. <laughs> and so immediately I knew that I wanted to call it Lucius Malfoy after the character from Harry Potter
0: Yeah, with a genus name like that, you you can't not exactly. go for a Harry Potter reference Exactly
1: <laughs> <laughs> So what is this wasp? What's it do? Well, the thing is, we don't really know very much about it We don't really even know the host mm. um, But we kno- we do know that it's pretty, pretty uncommon, un- uncommonly collected but collected from quite a, wa- a wide area around New Zealand uh and most of the specimens that, that that we were using for our description were collected a while ago so we haven't seen it in a while mm
0: so there was something floating around museum drawers yeah yeah kind of exactly yeah it wasn't something
1: that i caught during my masters it was yeah. something that was that was ready to go at as most sort of um you know wasps are in New Zealand they're sort of known to genus level but most mm. of them need need a description to species so so
0: when you describe a new species and you put this name out there you kind of have to justify the name often you know you're naming it in honor of some prominent taxonomist or figure how how do you justify Lucius Malfei?
1: so so i looked at the wasp it's a sort of cream colored wasp and I was, I, and, I was know, seedy looking, Lucius, you know, <laughs> Lucius Malfoy, he's got the, he's got the blonde, long blonde hair, Yeah. but really it was about what I thought I would do is I would try to get people to, to talk a little bit about wasps and, and get wasps out there for a new generation mm. and, and sort of play on the idea that Lucius Malfoy is a villain, but he sort of comes right after the end of the series in Harry Potter and he sort of stops being evil and joins the community. And I sort of am am hoping that that wasps will one day be able to reclaim their place among among the insect community as valued members rather than as <laughs> feared villains as they are now.
0: Well, yeah, people think of wasps as stingy things and I imagine most of them are a little uh, no, innocuous
1: egg-laying things, right? Yeah, that's true, that's true. Only a small proportion of them are the sort of social stingy annoying barbecue ruining wasps that we yeah. that we know and or that we love to hate but certainly in new zealand we don't have any native social wasps we but we have a lot of native parasitoid wasps and these are the kinds of wasps that sort of inject their egg into a caterpillar and then it kind of feeds on the insides of the mm. caterpillar and then bursts out when it's ready sort of like the alien movies So they're really cool (laughs) and they don't, they don't harm people. They don't, they don't live in nests together. They just kind of do their own thing and they kind of can be useful for, for various things like pest control and things like that.
0: So whenever you do these species descriptions, I imagine it gets a lot of popular media hype. It's got a name like Lucius Malfoy.
1: Yeah. So this one, this one certainly did. And it was, it all started with, um, and Beston from the university of Auckland press office, who did (laughs) a great job at, um, tempting, uh, Jamie Morden from the Herald, New Zealand Herald to run a story on it. So he ran, he ran the story on it first and then it just kind of, it just kind of exploded because the guardian picked it up. And I think Mm -hmm. after that happened, then a lot of other international media, um, saw it as well. And so I was talking to someone from the guardian. I was, then, um, You know, Anne called me. She's like, "Tom, you're going to get a call from CNN. No big deal." (laughs) And I was like, "Okay, cool." So I spoke to someone from CNN and spoke to someone from the Times of India, and then it just kind of it went all around the world, and it was in, you know, um, like the, the the some large Spanish. Uh, language papers and portuguese language papers and <laughs> swedish public radio and yeah it was it was so great. you
0: had one of those 15 minutes of fame science moments yeah it was for <laughs> a, a couple of days there you're <laughs> yeah. you're the next big thing and then it all disappears
1: again right yeah and then yeah exactly it was it peaked really quickly and then it kind of <laughs> died down but it was a, it was a lot of fun yeah yeah it was a lot of fun what
0: was the response of the harry potter community though mixed yeah <laughs> <laughs> they weren't super excited that you'd named a. I think. Wasp? So. I think.
1: I think most Harry Potter fans were really happy that you know something cool had happened relating to Harry Potter. There were a few people that doubted the connection and the story behind it. Um, Wait, what was this story? Well, the, the story of you know Lucius Malfoy being the villain, and then and then kind of trying to me trying to sort of draw a parallel between him and wasps, and m- me wanting to sort of help the reputation of wasps and things like that <laughs> i mean some you know some people thought i was drawing a long bow potentially just to grab media um <laughs> but you know that's there's always going to be haters out there james
0: i actually don't remember lucius malfoy coming good in the end over Harry potter
1: no i think it's i think it's after the um i think it's sort of after the the main series of books oh. and films there's another I think.
0: Oh, so you're, this is a deep dive uh, yeah. Harry Potter reference. All right, it's, yeah. So there you go. Now you know that the true fans are, are on board with it. They you know what's going on. <laughs> what about you? Didn't like reach out to,
1: to J.K. Rowling and say, "Hey, just so you know." Well, yeah, I did on Twitter. Yeah. Um, she didn't see it or chose not to respond. One of those. <laughs> um, but I did. I did uh, mention. I did sort of like mention uh, Jason Isaacs, the actor that plays in oh, yeah. the movies, and he tweeted a couple of times about it, um, which was quite fun. I imagine J.K. Rowling's probably pretty busy. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah, <laughs> pretty busy. Jason Isaacs not not as busy though. <laughs> apparently, apparently not. No. <laughs> Good actor though. I like him. Uh, what's the response of
0: the taxonomy community whenever you do these fun taxonomy names?
1: Yeah, that was something that I was a little bit worried about because I sort of had this idea that I wanted to expose more people to taxonomy and wasps and things like that. But it's sort of a fine line between, you know, doing a, a science communication kind of thing and just kind of trivializing something. Or I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want taxonomists to think, Oh, look at this guy. He's just done like one species and he thinks he's, <laughs> he thinks he's a rock star. Media darling here. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cause you know, some, you know, a lot of taxonomists are working around the clock and, and they're, they're putting out descriptions of, you know, they'll describe like 30 species at a time and yeah. revise higher order groups and things like that. But, I mean, most of the most of the taxonomists I've spoken to have thought it was really cool and, you know, just any kind of exposure for taxonomy and what what they do is a good thing, I guess.
0: Yeah, I imagine th- there's probably some... Uh well, maybe old school taxonomists that think names have to have something to do with their biology or mm. the history of that, that taxa but I think this is something you hear a lot that pops up there'll be news articles about this bug just got named after Beyonce or this yeah. one's named after some other f- famous person Kanye who knows <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and I, I think you're right I think it's good PR for taxonomy which is probably
1: not appreciated as
0: much as it should be
1: yeah I think I think it really, I think if you were describing something like, you know, 30 species and and you, you know, maybe if you describe one of them after someone famous and then you'll, you'll be able to tell your story about Mm. it because it will get into the media and things like that. I think that's a good idea. I think there's, there'll always be a place for that. And I, I mean, I think if you're just pumping out species that are (laughs) Mm. everyone is named after some famous pop star or something, it might not, it might not have the same impact. Mm. But yeah, I think every now and then it's a really good idea. It really deserves more attention and appreciation because, you know, describing species is the first step to understanding them and communicating about them with, with Mm. anyone. And so I think, you know, there's been a sort of decline in funding and prestige associated with taxonomy over the years. And there are lots of reasons for that. Um, but I think. I think we really do need to get them behind our taxonomists and support them better.
0: Mm. I, f- I feel like there's this scientific uh, food pyramid thing going on. It's a bit backwards where we have all this fundamental information that, that we still need, like taxonomy, like the fact that there's probably the majority of living things on the planet we just don't know what they are, don't even have names for them to start with. And that having that information would then be a springboard to doing so much more amazing science but the way science is valued and funded it's more about that top tasty little peak of the pyramid as that's what's we we tend to find really exciting how how do you convince people that this fundamental stuff is worth funding and worth caring about beyond giving wasp
1: school names yeah i think it is a challenge i think i think taxonomists are approaching it uh, I think they're sort of innovating and incorporating a wider range of methods. So they might do some morphology based descriptions and they might also include DNA in their descriptions as well. And they might also include behavior or or some other element as well, which I think is really cool. Integrating mm. all those different um, types of data. And I think relying on just one is, is not a good idea. So I think a lot of people are sort of moving in that direction where they want to have as much information as possible um, and also then making sure that that information is, is accessible in the form of keys and other things as well but I think you know taxonomy also has its own sort of intellectual um, background and its own goals and aims and interests as well and um, I think it's important that people don't view it as uh, a sort of like a service to an end user but rather its own discipline, its own area, with really interesting mm. ideas, and because you know, naming a species is not just giving it a name; it's 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 placing it into a, a classification, and mm. uh, which is sort of, you know, um, a, a lot a lot more interesting than just kind of you know, naming it. Yeah,
0: you're you're making dis- inferences about its relationships within larger groups of organisms, and. Where it is in space, time, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's it's mm. a good point, and I understand that you know taxonomy can be important for the sheer um, just fundamental information that it gives us. But this kind of stuff you're work- working on too can be very applied because mm. you're working yeah. on things that are important for
1: agriculture and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. I'm um I've I'm about I'm almost two years into my PhD now, and and I'm working on a a sort of biocontrol type type area I'm looking at uh, looking at non-target risks associated with a tiny little species of parasitic wasp and it lays its eggs inside the eggs of stink bugs and so the, the one that I'm looking at is being considered for release in New Zealand against brown marmorated stink bug which is just an absolutely devastating horticultural pest that's native to eastern Asia but it's invaded uh, North America and Europe as well, and it's causing huge problems over the, in those places for all sorts of different crops, um, from soy to apples and stone fruit and mm. things. So, yeah, we, we're really, there's a lot of worry that the brown stink single will eventually establish in New Zealand at, at some point. It's being intercepted at the border quite frequently. Okay. And so I think the idea with the project I'm working on is to try to look at these these non-target risks and, and try to get something sort of online before it before it reaches New Zealand and establishes here and starts causing issues. So
0: ah, it's pretty cool that biocontrol is so forward-looking. It's mm. looking at measures for things that aren't even here. Yeah, it's quite yet. cool. <laughs> it's
1: sort of like a proactive approach, which I think is really cool. Yeah. So I'm looking at all at at our at the New Zealand stink bug fauna and and how the wasp will respond and, and what it will do and, and that kind of thing so it's, mm. it's really interesting
0: all right so if you can find particular interactions where these wasps are good control agents for bugs you already have in new zealand should one day you need to
1: it can be a secret weapon against
0: other pests that come in
1: yeah exactly it's sort of like um it's sort of like holding it in reserve i guess or <laughs> yeah just <laughs> <You> have another <laughs> arrow in your yeah, biosecurity yeah. quiver yeah yeah sort of <laughs> like that yeah <laughs>
0: So doing this sort of research is obviously puts you in the public eye quite a bit because you're talking about things that are immediately relevant to people's life and, you know, just flying into New Zealand. Biosecurity is the first impression you get just going through customs there. What's it like sort of being a bit of a spokesperson for plant and food security in the
1: region? Well, I mean, I don't know if I'd consider myself a spokesperson for it. I think it's... Yeah, I mean, New Zealand is... New Zealand relies a lot on a good biosecurity system. And I think we do have a really good biosecurity network here. You know, we are an island, and we are a little bit isolated, so it makes it a little bit easier than somewhere like, you know, a a landlocked country in Europe or something mm. like that. But there's still so many challenges. Um, you know, only only a certain volume of freight can be searched and... And only you know all all it takes is some bugs in someone's suitcase mm. you know to cause a really big problem for the economy and for the livelihoods of a lot of people and yeah so biosecurity is 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 one of the things that we really sort of trade on as 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 New Zealand I think so it's really important
0: and New Zealand doesn't have the best history I don't want to say track record but yeah, there's a lot of stuff here that maybe shouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, that.
1: yeah. It's sort of the first thing that that people say to me when I say I'm w- working on biocontrol. They bring up stoats or yeah, <laughs> something like that. Uh, but I think you know, biocontrol really has matured, especially since the 90s when it became more sort of experimental and more in line with um, international regulations around. Um, you know, releasing new organisms and things like mm. that and, and and having to make sure that, you know, you're, you're complying with, with, with different regulations. So in mm. New Zealand we've got some frameworks around that to make sure that you have to do a bit of work before you can, you know, release something. You've got to actually know what's going to happen and, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah, despite the, I don't know, dynamic history of introduced species in New Zealand, the more recent response to it is, pretty incredible and you see it as soon as you come into the country that uh boot scrubbing stations you know for for carry dieback and the is it something like a ferret's not allowed in new zealand anymore something like that i keep hearing yeah possibly i'm not
1: i'm (laughs) not up with the play on ferrets but yeah you you do the invertebrate things. yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, mostly yeah
0: (laughs) but you're also getting involved in the plant and food research podcast
1: Yep, yep, that's a cool little. Do you want to you plug your podcast? Oh, that you're absolutely, in? absolutely. It's called Side Jest, and it can oh. be found where, where all good podcasts like yours are found. <laughs> uh, no, it's great. It's um, produced by uh, the the media guy Martin Heffer at, at Planet Food, and we have lots of people from Planet Food talking about various topics and mm. what they're doing, and and you know panel discussions and things like that. So it's really really yeah. cool. It's been great.
0: All right. So, science jest, in, is it
1: sort of general science? Or yeah, it's, it generally it's generally it's um, generally it's generally science that's that's being done by Plant and Food staff. Yeah. So I'm I'm based I'm based at Plant and Food, but I'm not a, a member of staff. I'm just based there for my PhD. So you mm-hmm. can sort of join in as a student and you know give my opinion on things. And it's a pretty good name, science
0: jest. Yeah. Pretty it's happy good. when you came up with that one. <laughs> yeah, oh, it wasn't there, it was, yeah, it was, I guess, Martin or one of the other yeah. people, yeah, it's a good name. So, obviously, you're doing lots of communicating with the public and through, I guess, what we would call non-traditional media in science.
1: Yeah, I try to, I try to, um, you know, write a blog post every mm. now and then and, you know, tweet things that are maybe interesting and maybe science and communications and media-y and stuff yeah. like that,
0: yeah. What's wrong with regular scientific communication?
1: What do we need to reach out to the public directly? Well, I mean, the traditional outlet for all kind of scholarly academic works is when a, a researcher or an academic they have some results, they do some work and they generally publish those results in a in a scientific or scholarly journal. And that's sort of been the dominant form of communicating scholarly results for hundreds of years and it hasn't really changed that much mm. in, 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 in its basic essence I would say um, and so essentially there's a process of peer review where other people in, in, in the area that are equipped to understand the work, they take a look at it and make sure that there aren't any huge omissions uh, or errors or that everything, all the methods seem to be sound and, and that the author isn't kind of misinterpreting things or stepping outside of their results or things like that. And then it gets published in the journal. And I guess one of the, the big differences between, you know, the sort of 1800s, early 1900s and now is that the scholarly publishing industry has really concentrated into a few massive publishing companies and they control over half of the, uh, the, the sort of scholarly information that's published in journals. And I think some people are a little bit worried about how the whole system works and whether it's fair, especially when it comes to the taxpayer, who generally is funding quite a large proportion of the work, especially in places like New Zealand. So in New Zealand, we have, you know, our unit, the average university is, is about 42% taxpayer funded for its operating costs and things. And then when you also look at a lot of the grants that, that scholars are, are applying for and using for their work, a lot of that is taxpayer-funded as well. And so recently I sort of wrote a little thing for newsroom.co.nz where I, where I basically argued that taxpayers should have access to the research outputs at the end of the process because without, without the taxpayer it wouldn't really be possible to do a lot of this work.
0: So the taxpayers that are funding scientific research, I imagine lots of them wouldn't even know what a scientific journal is or a scientific manuscript is, but that's the primary way that we get scientific ma- information out there. And as you said, they're all controlled by these big publishing houses, so people have to then pay access. Yeah,
1: so generally, yeah. So how it works is the the an author, a researcher submits a manuscript uh, it gets peer-reviewed and then published and then in most cases still the dominant form is that that work is then put behind a paywall mm. and f- so the public a member of the public can access that work if they pay I don't know around 30 bucks a pop for each article which is you know if you want to access a few articles it's it's getting yeah. expensive and and then what happens is the the publisher sells access, to their whole range of journals usually to institutions like universities crown research research institutes um, government departments maybe um other private organisations and so the other the other way that it can happen as well is where the author or the author's institution pays often a, a large charge up front to make the work open access mm. but i'm sort of I sort of have concerns about that model as well because you know it doesn't really change the fact that the taxpayer is still paying at the end of the day for this yeah. for this work to be published um, yeah, they're being double charged yeah yeah a, I mean they, they do get access after that but they still have to pay that they still have to stump up up front for it in some way or another and so I I was sort of arguing for for a, a different way well, it's a way that a lot of people already do it, but it's not it's not a lot of uh, you know researchers don't really um, know much about different forms of um, access and and, and how it all works. So I'm sort of arguing for this approach called green open access and you know open access is just the basic idea that there are all these different um, models that you can use to make work publicly available and accessible but the 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 beauty with green open access is that Nothing really has to change about the current system for it to work really well. So all, all, all that happens is the researcher or author can still publish in whatever journal they want to publish in. They, they, they submit their manuscript, it's peer-reviewed, it's published in the journal, and then all they have to do is upload the sort of uh, final version of the manuscript before it's formatted. They upload that to a personal website or... Um, their their institution's uh, library or um, a public repository like Archive or one of these places. And then depending on where they upload it, there may be an embargo before it can be released. So it may be six months or a year after the sort of uh, full version is published before the green open access version can be, can be sort of like unlocked for the public. But sometimes there isn't an, an embargo. And even if there is an embargo, it's still a better situation than having all of this work locked up forever. So then, the the full the full version published. Depending on the embargo, then the green open access becomes uh, available as well. So this,
0: I guess, you're putting the onus on the scientists to find a way to upload their own work. Yeah, I mean, publicly
1: available, right? It does. Th- so the thing is, is this re- this requires the author to do one sort of final step. Mm. I mean, the, the good thing the good thing is that a lot of... So most research is carried out at, in New Zealand at, at universities and Crown Research Institutes. And New Zealand universities already have repositories of mm. their own that they can use. And, you know, library staff are generally the ones that, that administer this the, the repositories. And library staff, for the most part, are really keen to get on board and help researchers. And, 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 and you know, in some cases... They'll they'll do it for the researcher, or they'll show them how to do it, and it's a very simple process: mm. uploading a file. You know. So this would be, like, almost like the draft
0: version of that manuscript when it's pretty much completed, but it's not fully formatted and polished. Yeah, as yeah, it would be in the journal.
1: It's still draft. I mean, it's it's gone through peer review, so yeah. it's um, so it's scientifically so it's, signed. So it's, yeah. There's no difference really between this version and the final version other than the formatting that yeah. the, the publisher does. yeah,
0: It's like watching, you know, the... Well, it's like watching a movie before they've put the, the CGI monsters in, kind of, you know... You <laughs> yeah, kind <laughs> the of. The movie's all still there. It just doesn't have the polish and the logos and that sort of stuff. Yeah, but the exactly. The science is the same.
1: It's the same text. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so do journals have any clauses or laws that would prevent individual scientists just doing this for all of their papers?
1: So... The way that the the screen open access process works is that first of all it's it's allowed by the publishers and each journal has their own policy it is allowed or it should it be it is allowed. A, it is allowed okay but but there are there are different policies so uh depending on where you upload it hmm. uh there there can be an embargo sometimes they don't allow you to um upload the the sort of pre peer review version it has to be the post which is fine um sometimes there's an embargo but generally if you're doing it if you're uploading it to um a a university repository then it's normally a six-month embargo which isn't a big deal Mm. um but i I guess i guess that is one of the weaknesses of this approach because it's still it's sort of a process which is allowed by publishers and they could change their mind if they wanted to Mm. but i think that's sort of unlikely because a lot of them have to have this option to comply with uh, regulations overseas. So for example, in Europe and North America, a lot of biomedical research is publicly funded and it has to be published either in an open access journal where the the author or the institution pays the big fee up front or it has to be made available through this kind of green open access process somehow. And so because of that, the publishers sort of have to offer it and allow Mm. it. Um, but there is there are some concerns about whether they might try to restrict this policy based on location. So if they have to comply with some sort of funding mandate in North America, maybe they could say if you're a North American researcher, you can do this, but in the, in these journals, but you can't do it if you're in New Zealand because there's not the same. Yeah. You know. So there are some some concerns around that, and some people also would prefer to see more of a. Uh, a larger just more disruptive kind of change to the way that it works but i mean you know i i feel i feel like if the aim is to get research out there this process can be used right now and it's really easy yeah and it doesn't require any massive changes or investment in infrastructure or massive behavioral change you know it's 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 a pretty simple process and i should actually say i should actually say that 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 i think it's um University of Canterbury. They they already have a policy, All right. and some other uni- universities um, in New Zealand may have a similar policy where they actually do require their their researchers to submit the, a green open access copy into their own repository. Mm. It's pretty sure whatever happens, that scientific
0: publishing system has to change. It's a fundamentally flawed
1: thing, right? Yeah, I think I think the main issue is that it's kind of it's it's a a process and a business model that hasn't changed a lot for a really long time and when that happens you know you start you start to see a lot of areas that could be improved the problem is it's an incredibly successful business model the, these publishing
0: houses are doing great so <laughs> so convincing them to change
1: yeah would yeah. have
0: to be something big and disruptive that starts to I don't want to say cripple them but <laughs> maybe <laughs> let's go with that <laughs>
1: yeah I mean it's it it is difficult to convince, you know, large concentrated vested interests to change when they're, when they're making pretty good profits. Mm. And I think, you know, there's always this, this number that's, that's kind of thrown around with the largest of the publishing houses, um, making like, you know, a 36% profit in 2010 or something on their, on their, um, on their revenues or something. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, these are these are large profits and you know Google and Apple can't even boast yeah. <laughs> those kinds of margins so you know and i guess the when when most of this money is coming from the taxpayer from various countries and funding bodies people start to get a little bit annoyed that there isn't a sort of a fairer way of uh, of doing it and you know it, it is a really complicated area green open access is not going to solve A lot of the problems that are have crept into the publishing process, but in my view, it's a pretty good it's a pretty good way of ensuring access to a large chunk of research right now Mm. that anyone can do, and that doesn't require a lot of work or money or time.
0: Yeah, like you said, you're not changing the system; you're just informing people with this tool that can be currently used. Yeah, yeah. And get your own research out there.
1: There's a really good there's a really good website. There's a I can't remember the organization that that runs it, but it's called the Sherpa Romeo Database. And it's... Catchy name? Well, yeah, Sherpa is an organization, <laughs> but I can't remember what it stands for. But they... So so they, they have this database of journal policies. So you can actually type in the the journal name or you can browse by publisher and you can see what the, the journal's policies are around Green Open Access. Can you upload which version? Where can you upload it to? Is there an embargo? All these kinds of things. So that's mm. really cool. And and the, the great thing about this process is... If you do upload, um, you know, a post-print, a sort of post-peer review version of the manuscript to your personal website or a repository, as long as you do a a couple of basic things, like you have the title and the authors listed on the first page of the document, Google Scholar does a pretty good job of finding that and then popping a little link to that next to the search results of Mm, the citation or the, the work that you're searching for. So that happened... To me when i I published the the species description that we were talking about earlier, I published it in New Zealand entomologist, and I did this green open access thing where I put the the post print on my on my website, which is uh, tomsaunders.co.nz. dot <laughs> co nice uh, and and then Google Scholar I think it was only a couple of weeks later. Google Scholar had linked to that in the search results because New Zealand entomologist is a a subscription journal. Mm. so I thought that was really cool it didn't take very long. And most people who are looking for free access to research are going to be using Google Scholar. Yeah. So it sort of works quite well with discoverability. I can't imagine who's paying the one-off journal access
0: fees to get papers. Because think an issue of a journal would be, let's say, 10 articles. If you're going to have to pay $30 for an article, it's Mm. $300 for something that's not the most thrilling read
1: on the planet. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it is it is a real shame because there are a lot of people out there who are interested in in the scientific results, not just the press release that mm. accompanies them, but actually they want to see the data. They want to see the results. You know, there are people that do really great work. So, for example, Wikimedians in New Zealand. You know they they want to they want to find um, um, data inside papers and they want to they want to upload that upload it to Wikidata or they want to they want to add citations to, to articles on New Zealand people or places or animals and plants, and they and they need to have access to those documents so that they can actually, you know, add add those citations to the to the relevant um, add the information from those papers and then cite them in the Wikipedia article and things mm. like that. And you know they're contributing to this this huge free repository of knowledge, this massive encyclopedia, Wikipedia. And I feel like people like that should be given the tools and the access, because it's, at the end of the day, they, their taxes have funded mm. the work that they're trying to find.
0: And if people want to read more about this, what's your website again?
1: Uh, it's tomsaunders.co.nz. All
0: no right. And you're on Twitter too. I am. n Z All right. Well, we should probably let you go because we're we're sitting here in a delightful winery on Waiheke Island. In New Zealand, but we have a conference to get to. <laughs> hmm. So we should probably go do that. Sounds good. Thanks so much for sitting and having a chat, Tom.
1: Thanks, James. Thanks for having me
0: on. No worries. Thank you guys for listening. Follow us on social media at In-Situ Science and check out everything you have on InSituScience.com. If you like what we do and want to see more of it, you can support us through our Patreon page. So just go to Patreon.com slash Science. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.